This podcast is brought to you by John Conti, roasters, brewers, providers of coffee, tea, water, and lemonade based in Louisville, Kentucky. So delicious. Every single bit of it. There was a day when the coffee around here was terrible. Since we've made the change to John Conti, it's changed everything. Everybody's nicer. They have better attitudes. They dress better. John Conti is delicious. Half of that may or may not be true and or may or may not have been because of the coffee, but the fact of the matter is, is the coffee is absolutely delicious since we didn't make the change. Absolutely. It's uh, Kentucky Proud. It's local, but it's uh, represented in 50 states, 6,000 stores selling John Conti. That's, that's amazing. A, that's absolutely incredible. When we made the change, we have five locations now, and they're caring for, and they're serving so many people, and we brew it every single day. So many people who come into the four walls of the homes, they're getting John Conti coffee. And these are lovely people, too, who care about the quality of their uh, product and who care about the people to whom they serve that product. So I have nothing but respect for them. Service with a smile, too. Did you know one time we actually broke one of our pots, and we called them, and they brought a pot in a big truck. That's lovely. That big truck was probably going somewhere else, but they came with a brand new pot. I think it says something about the places that we go and the things that we find there. And more often than not these days, John Conti is, is where I am. And it's impressive. It's an impressive brand, and it's a delicious product, and I'm grateful to them. I know you are too. We're both grateful for them supporting us, working with us in this podcast as we support and work with them in the way they provide their product to people. If you haven't checked out John Conti Coffee, get in your vehicle, go to your local place where you get your coffee and find it. If they don't have it there, turn around, go somewhere else and then find it. it. Absolutely worth it. Thank you, John Conti. Are you recording? Absolutely, I'm recording. So uh, Wendell Berry, who is a Kentucky Poet Laureate, uh, lives in Henry County, farms the land, uh, to the best of my knowledge, does it by hand, actually, still. Um, went to New York for a little bit to teach and came back. He and his wife, Tammy, they've uh, lived together and married forever. He says in a book, um, uh, I think it's called Jaber Crow, a book about a guy who wants to go to seminary and ends up uh, uh, a barber. He talks about whiskey leaving the jug and you know that sound? Gulp, 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 gulp. He says it's saying good, 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 <laughs> because it's so delicious. It is so delicious. Bourbon is delicious. Coffee is delicious. And uh, here we are today again. Welcome. I'm Jonathan Carroll. I am still Nathan. Last week I was questionable on that, but I am still Nathan. <laughs> and I uh, want to ask you, Nathan, a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, to say a little something about the title of this podcast, You'll Die Trying. What does that mean to you? I am really always striving for a better version of me to the point of exhaustion, to the point of frustration. And I think a lot of people... Actually, I know a lot of people probably feel the same way. Um, 
and uh, every day we want to be better. We want to excel. We want to succeed. And I think we're in a culture. It's so really. It's super. It's stupid. We want to read the last chapter of the book to see what happens and how it ends, but we're not really focused on the actual journey. And yeah. so this is what that kind of is for me. This is uh, actually just getting free therapy with you, Doctor. <laughs> I'm just every day I want to be a better version of, and I know I'm never going to be perfect. And one day on my deathbed, when I'll breathe my last breath, I will have tried and not succeeded at being the perfect version of me. So it's you'll die trying, and I think that people can relate to that. And you know, I, I I've joked on the first. I think it was the first week I said that, you know, I'm a commoner and you're the, bring the doctor, you know, but you know, I, I don't know. We're, we're just all striving to be the best that we the can best be. We can be. And as a businessman and, uh, you know, I just thought maybe I had some things that people could relate to. And I know you can bring your professional thoughts to light and people can maybe relate to that too. Well, thank you. You're, you're always so kind and, you know, I honor and respect you, uh, more than words. And, uh, and that brings me to this question of words. You'll die trying. We didn't call it, you'll pass away trying. In your line of work, you probably say pass away 50 times a day, at Absolutely. least. Absolutely. I tend to use the word die. You probably use it interchangeably. I think I've heard you use it interchangeably. I use it both, yep. Yeah. Can you say a little bit to uh, our uh, loving listeners about your choice of language. Is it a choice? Is it conscious? Is it intentional? And what's it mean? All of our language, if I can speak to the passed away versus the die. Die is such a direct term. And a lot of people, um, like I, I think it was last week when I said that we are in a culture of people think we're invincible, don't want to die, want to talk about dying. The word die is scary. And so, for instance, we type obituaries. Uh, I call them tributes. So again, language. I call the word tribute because you are paying tribute, paying homage to someone's life in a couple of paragraphs. Obituary just has like a gross, like lazy sound to it. Obituary. Um, but yeah. in that tribute, 90%, 95% of all families that we serve, and we are serving 500 families a year, think about that, choose the word passed away. And I think they use that because of the reader, because their family, that word is softer. That word is not as harsh as the word died. There are some families that I've cared for and they're like, they died. <laughs> they, they died at the hospital. That is the word we will use. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but in other words, for instance, we do not say body. What I mean by that, when someone dies, we don't say, I'm going to go pick the body up. Most, uh, most funeral homes, uh, care providers would say that word. Um, we say the word loved one or call them by name because they, the deceased loved one most certainly <laughs> is worthy of that. Oh, goodness, uh, they're yes. not defined as body. That's insane to me. Loved one in our care. Uh, we have this culture of verbiage of language that is, I am very proud of and it's crucial. But yeah, it's amazing that you're talking about died and passed away. Well, if if it's true, as we talked about last week, that, that and I think it is, research shows that 93% of what we communicate is nonverbal, then we're, you know, 7% means that's, that's pretty rich, pretty dense, and we have to, I think, be intentional about that. It's something uh, my wife Joy and I laugh uh, about a lot, and we both come at this from different places, but we end up in the same place, and that is being intentional with speech. 
is crucial to me. Precise language. This doesn't mean you have to have an excellent vocabulary because I don't think that I do. I think it's just crucial that we are intentional with the words that we say and and we do what our parents taught us. You say what you mean and you mean what you say. So I tend to be a little bit more direct, as you just suggested, with the word die versus pass away. To me, um, it is final. There is an end. It is punctiliar. There is a period at the end of that sentence. And so when we say this person has died, it, it has a gravity to it and invites me to sit there in that space and discomfort and awkwardness and sadness as if to kind of come alongside that hole in the cemetery that we all are at some point forced to look into and to wrestle with our own mortality. And I think for me saying died and death brings me closer to the precipice of that, that marked space where I have questioning. I think it, I think it, I've learned an awful lot in the past year of my life by just, it doesn't matter if I believe with, agree with, you know, um, and I think it's really helped having all these different lives, lives of employees and people coming from all these different backgrounds, some coming from, you know, uh, upper scale, uh, you know, lifestyles growing up and some of them coming from, you know, poor poverty and uh, all of these just this melting pot. Um, I think I've learned an awful lot about just, I was thinking about Father Pat Reynolds. I don't know if you know Father Pat Reynolds. He is... A brilliant man. I love his sense of humor. He's very dry. Uh, Catholic, uh, p- Catholic priest. We had coffee the other day, and I was just sitting there as I was talking. I was watching him, and he was just present. He, he is. He doesn't judge. You can tell by his demeanor. Uh, if he does judge, then he does a heck of a job of, <laughs> of hiding that judgment. Right. But. I guess it's just, I want to be like him in that regard, yeah. coming from this, you know, they died, they passed away. Just however you want to say it, however your faith tells you to say it or feel it or whatever, just, you. it's really neat to just listen and to learn and to hear and to, to maybe in your mind be like, you know what, I don't believe that, I don't think that, I don't feel that, however, I am here with you, and that's pretty cool. In my line of work, we call that the suspense or the suspending of moral judgment. Uh, as a therapist, people will come in and they come from various walks of life and they have various practices, uh, whether uh, professional practices, uh, relationship practices, all kinds of things. And it is never in any moment, with the exception of when it comes to abuse, it is never my job to make a judgment. In fact, that's what makes the therapeutic space so powerful is that it is the only space that I know of where it is the expressed, transparent, and necessary requirement that you don't have to earn or attract approval. Out here, we're all in transactional relationships. I want to make sure that I'm accepted. You want to make sure that you have approval. We put on what we put on, we speak how we speak, we engage how we engage, all out of a transactional nature. Relationships tend to be 
you know, coming and going. But in a therapeutic context, you are, it's only helpful if you are who you are. And as a therapist, there is never even the slightest impulse for judgment. It makes it a very different space, and it's difficult at first for people to get used to because they're so used to having to say things a certain way or not say things at all, whereas therapy requires that you say it, and you say it however it comes out, and you are authentic, and then you have that kind of mirrored back to you, and you get to make decisions. So we, uh, in the therapeutic world, talk about the suspending of moral judgment, and I hear you saying that uh, Father Pat does the same thing as a practice of his own life, is to not sit in judgment of another, but simply to sit with another. And that can be one of the most beautiful and life-giving gifts anyone could give another person. You feel more alive. You really do. And I don't know if you can answer this, but I'm going to ask it. Um, do you see a lot of business owners come in? T- I mean, I'm sure you see all walks of life, but do you see a lot of business owners yeah, come in? Sure. I think as a business owner, we have this desire to portray ourselves as these all-knowing. Uh, I don't want to say all-knowing. I, I retract that. Uh, that have it all together for the most part do not have struggles and are very confident all the time. And I, you know, I got to be honest, Jay, I, I'm not always that. Um, I'm not at all. And just recently, you know, in the, this day of being very more vocal about mental illness and more vocal about that type of thing. And, um, uh, you know, I am one that has, have, has struggled with anxiety. Um, do you think that that is prevalent in, business uh, owners and leaders that anxiety is like, you know, more common? Yeah. Well, I think anxiety exists across the board for all human beings. Uh, I think it's, it's a force that everyone lives with. I think it's neither good nor bad. It's kind of value neutral, uh, but it can have negative effects. And I think for business owners uh, and people who are kind of chiefly responsible for the provision of of goods and things like food and clothing and shelter to their families. And when they feel themselves solely responsible for the efficacy or the effectiveness of this company, yeah, anxiety is a big deal uh, because I, it has to work. And what if it doesn't? And what if this decision adversely impacts the rest of what we're doing? What if this hire sinks us? What if we can't find the hire that would sink us? So I think there are a lot of factors that play into um, entrepreneurs and others who are responsible kind of at upper management or senior level, even ownership of businesses, large and small, where they really wrestle with uh, how much weight is on their shoulders to make something work, which is why it's so important that we have the right people in the right positions with good processes and good products. And this Marcus Lemonis talks about the three P's. Yep. People uh, process product. That's right. It's a, cr- it, that is crucial. And, uh, focusing on that is helps one sleep at night. And that's something that when, when you came in and partnered and joined us and we've kind of really honed in on that, that's actually helped me sleep a lot better at night. So, um, if, if anxiety is something that, you know, you struggle with a little bit, like I have in the past, I think it's important to just, uh, focus on, uh, in, in this instance, we're talking about people, you know, hire the right people, bring in the right people, surround yourself <laughs> with the most incredible of people. I am around people that are better than me, in my opinion, uh, that I want to be like. And uh, for that reason, I have become better. Yeah, same and, here. And I think that's an important principle that we yeah. surround ourselves with people who are 
who are better than we are, smarter than we are, who are who have it together in, in a certain way more than 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 the rest of us. Yes, I think we we um, do our best to surround ourselves with people who have particular aspects or attributes that we need. And I'm guessing that they might say the same about us in a perfect world. But as long as we're surrounded by people who who are working hard to be their best, we have something to kind of measure ourselves by. Not compare to, uh, but a metric to say, you know what, There's, I don't want to rest. I don't want to rest on my laurels about being the best version of myself. I, I have to keep striving. I have to keep reading. I have to keep listening, keep asking questions. I think to me, that's the most important thing we can do is ask questions. Yeah. And then the process is part, uh, you know, you wake up in the morning, what do you do? You have a process, you have a daily hygienic plan of getting ready for work, right? So you've perfected that, I would hope. I mean, you know, you wash your hair, you brush your teeth, you do all the things that you do to get to work. Right. And you need to have those same similar processes in order at work, at your profession. As a leader, you know, I have a daily routine that I come into my office to see what's going on. I try to write a, uh, started writing my to-do list, if you will, of the things to follow up on, you know, um, giving myself 30 minutes of, of returning emails and all that, all that stuff. But, so you have your processes and then we have our processes in place for how to implement exceptional care, mm-hmm. right? Um, within the, the, the people that we are serving alongside. And then of course, lastly, the products, which is, is that care. It's right. the immaculate facilities to conduct that care. It's the immaculate vehicles that are vacuumed out to process a loved one's family to the, to the cemetery. It is the, the beautiful, well-dusted casket. I mean, you understand. So yep. whatever, whatever it is, I mean, that's, it's not what I've really learned. And, um, it's actually limited. My anxiety is we're not reinventing the wheel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're not. There is this tyranny of belief that we have to always be original. And in our efforts to strive for originality, I think we wear ourselves down because we we believe that the next best thing is it's it's on us to to create it when really at the end of the day I think we're called upon just to improve to continue to to get better uh, to ask questions to be critical of ourselves in terms of our practices not of ourselves but uh, of the things that we do and the way that we do them and the the people that we have doing them to just always start with self reform. And then to kind of move out from there with regard to our businesses or to our family life and and to to be honest about the, our shortcomings and, and to have a plan to move forward. And, and to me, planning is crucial. That's why, to your point, uh, having morning rituals and routines, having evening rituals and routines. The, the people who function the best, CEOs and other creators and artists who have really made an impact in our national and international conversations about what it means to be human. All of them, without exception, have prescribed morning and evening rituals and routines. It is a, it is a, a way to be ready. It is a way of preparing. It is a way of clearing our minds so that we don't have to make certain decisions because we're in kind of a, a, a mode of ritual. And a lot of people think that that's mundane and it's, it, it, it makes it you know, less special or it gets boring. And, but I think it is possible to learn how to create routines that work for you, that prepare you for your day. Um, because as Annie Dillard, the novelist, writes, you know, how we are spending our days is how we are spending our lives. We don't have 
all the time. There's an ancient benediction um, that says something like, um, we don't have much time to travel um, with those who are on the way with us. So be swift to be kind um, and to love and to work for peace. We don't have all the time in the world. You and I both know in our, in our life's work, we're around people who are encountering that wall where time ends. And people love to think and talk about money, but they don't love to think and talk about time. And I think we need to budget time like we budget money. How do you want to spend your morning hours? What could you do differently and better if you got up 30 minutes earlier? What could you do differently and better tomorrow if you spent 30 minutes prior to going to bed doing something for you to prepare yourself, to remind yourself of the day, to calculate the wins, to confess the losses, and to prepare for the next day? These rituals and routines really make life worth living. And so we mark our time. It's a way to budget, and it's a way to honor every time. Dave Ramsey talks about how every dollar needs to have a name. You need to know where every dollar is going. I think it's true for us every minute, but... Time is, above all, uh, in addition to our families, what we most take for granted. I tried something, and I think I want you to try it, too. You, Dr. Carroll, not you, the listener, you, Dr. Carroll, a few months ago, I keep referring back to, so Dr. Carroll uh, and I met, well, I never, wow, we never even really talked about how we met. Right. Uh, I was in a, a point in my life where there was uh, just a constant struggle, and uh, I called on Dr. Carroll um, from a professional standpoint uh, to get some coaching. And uh, I guess, not I guess, but we became we became friends, and uh, and from there it just it blossomed our friendship, and then our partnership as far as uh, business partners and. Uh, helping one another on our, he has a, a a lot of love for me. I've been speaking for you and I for him and he he and I we we just our families are are close and we stay in close contact. But mm-hmm. um, you sent me a text because we were texting one evening, and you said go be with family. Like you've encouraged me to put my phone down. Oh wow, what a <laughs> what a what a freeing thing that is. And you said just a moment ago. Uh, give yourself, get up 30 minutes earlier. Um, and when you do get up 30 minutes earlier, who, you listening, uh, don't get on your phone, right? Give yourself a 30 minute uh, meditation is what you've called it. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is freeing. Your brain is just, my gosh, I don't put my Apple watch on in the morning. Right. I keep it by my bedside. I get up. Um, now today I definitely did not get up 30 minutes early, but I feel good. I feel good today at Megan 706, 706 this morning, That's which by great. the way, I was at work by 754. That's like noon for you. Uh, yes, that is. So I, uh, Megan's like, are you going to get up? I'm like, yeah, I guess I'll get up. I guess I'll get up today. You know, and I was excited about the podcast, but, um, I love waking up that 30 minutes early, um, and just kind of getting going. Most people use uh, their phones for alarms now. And so the first thing they do is they touch their phone to snooze first and then stop their alarm. And then it's very easy to push the home button. And then here come all the notifications, badges and banners of things that you've missed, text calls, emails, and uh, news notifications. And it's, it's, it's a rabbit hole. And before you can even get up and go to the restroom, you've already been inundated with the information, most of which is immaterial to you, some of which might be important, almost none of which routinely is emergent. 
So I think the most important thing to do is, A, have an alarm clock that's not your phone. B, have an alarm clock that is across the room so that you have to get up to turn it off because I think snoozing delays the inevitable. And even though it may be a practice of yours, as it is of mine sometimes, it does interrupt, I think, that kind of waking because your body has this natural biorhythmic way of waking and it, it tricks the body into thinking, oh, maybe it's not time to get up yet, when really it is. We are much better served to get up, cross the room, turn off the clock, use the restroom, whatever, make the coffee. Uh, hydrating is a very important part of the first part of the day. It's actually best to just drink a quick eight ounces of water while you're waiting for your coffee because your body is dehydrated after having slept. And then to go into a place in your home or, or wherever you may be, hotel room even, that's quiet, uh, that's comfortable, and to be, whether that's journaling, uh, maybe that's reading something, uh, which I think is a hugely important ritual. Uh, maybe it's a, a devotion of some kind, meditation of some kind, maybe even stretching exercises, something for 30 minutes that you do just for you that does not involve a screen uh, or anything technologically uh, oriented. It really can free you to recognize that these devices are meant to serve us when so much of our lives are spent serving our devices. Can I say this? And then this is next week. This is next week's episode for certain. I was just thinking, seeing someone visually visualizing myself in a hotel room by myself with just myself <laughs> is a scary thought. Can you say self more? Self. <laughs> it's, it's a scary thought. Some people are scared of, of that. I think many of us are. I think we are all of us on a treadmill in some sense in life, working hard, um, playing hard. There, there, there's this um, thing that someone said once, I forgot who said it, that we have work and play and worship. And we've gotten to the place now where we, we um, worship work. We work at worship. No, no. We... We work. <laughs> I'm going to remember this. Do, Dr. Carroll Carol has, has just had an aneurysm. <laughs> you, we, we worship work. We work at play. And we play at worship. We do worship work. It is, for many of us, our God. It is the thing to which we bow and whose voice we answer. So we work uh, in a way that's worshipful. And we also, we have to work at play. We have to make ourselves do something fun. I like to have retreats with people, and we start out with Play-Doh, adults. They're like, why do we have Play-Doh? Well, we're going to sculpt. What are we going to sculpt? I don't know how to sculpt. At what point do we forget how important play is? So we work at play while worshiping work. And then for people who are churchgoers, look across the landscape of the American Christian uh, church so much of it is is entertainment based. We play at worship. The word liturgy means the work of the people. We're supposed to feel like we did something. We worked to practice being in the presence of God. So much of it that's done for us now, and in many ways it feels like entertainment, like play. Yeah. So uh, some reorientation is called for, and I think maybe next time. Um, we can delve into that. Absolutely. I look forward to talking with you again next week. Uh, thank you all so much for, for joining us and thanks for listening to me um, <laughs> share my uh, shortcomings and uh, <laughs> brutal honesty. I'm, I'm going to be nervous about this one, but that's okay. That's, that's what it's about. You know, that's 100% what it's about. That's what it's about. Well, guys, gals, uh, your love far more than you'll know. And we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thank you.